and open your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20 is where we will be this morning. I have an arrow here. And this arrow reminds me a bit of my childhood. I borrowed this one from my my nephew Gavin, who's got a bow and arrow. When I was a kid, we had a shed in our backyard, and my dad somewhere found this enormously thick piece of styrofoam. And he put it on the back of our shed. And in our backyard, we would take his bow and arrow. He had a bunch of bows and arrows, and we'd go out in the backyard, and we'd just shoot at that big piece of styrofoam for hours and hours, day after day, if we had some free time, go and work on our archery skills. And I remember it because that was a hardwood shed. It must have been a cedar shed or something like that. And if you ever missed that styrofoam, these are target arrows, so they don't have a very sharp point on them. But if you missed that styrofoam and hit the wood, that arrow came back at you. (laughs) And you had to get good at getting out of the way of the arrow that would bounce back right at you. And it's interesting because today in this passage from 1 Samuel chapter 20, we see some bows and some arrows in this story. And yes, as you'll see, Jonathan is the one who is shooting the arrows, but Jonathan really isn't shooting arrows. You know who's shooting the arrows in 1 Samuel 20? It's God. God gets out his bow and his arrows, and he shoots some arrows, and those arrows have some real significance in both the lives of David and his best friend, as you'll see, Jonathan. Uh, the course of their lives, in fact, you could say, is determined by where God sends some arrows. So we're going to look at this this week in First First Samuel chapter twenty. Now, last week we saw King Saul trying to undo what God had done. Do you recall? Namely, that God had chosen David to be king, but Saul was doing his best to try to prevent that from happening. So he tried numerous times to take David out to kill him. But none of those things worked because you can't stop the will of God. It's a train that keeps rolling no matter what you do, and Saul is certainly not strong enough to undo what God has done. Now, in 1 Samuel 20, we see an absolutely wonderful exchange between two very close friends. Now, again, to really get a sense of how close David and Jonathan are as friends, Go back to those verses in 1 Samuel 18 that we just read together. I want to show you something here. So keep your finger in 1 Samuel 20. Just flip back a couple of pages to chapter 18. Again, verse 1. These are the verses we read earlier. It says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So Jonathan and David are the best of friends, and you can tell by the covenant that they made with one another. They swore to be faithful to one another until death, and the manner of their relationship was so close that it was to the extent that they would be identified with one another. That's why it says that Jonathan stripped himself of his robe and gave it to David and even gave him his sword and his armor and his bow and his belt. The point is that David would wear those things, 
And as the son of the king, people knew who Jonathan was and what he wore. I'm sure he had his own very specific sword, but he gives that to David. And the point is, what's expressed in that symbolism is that Jonathan and David are so close that they are to be almost identified with one another. That's why David's wearing Jonathan's robe. That's why David has Jonathan's specially made, very peculiar sword that I'm sure was fitted exactly to his proportions and his strength and everything else. That's how close Jonathan and David are. David are. It says that their souls are knit together. They love one another as they love their own soul. And what this does in chapter 18 is it really sets the stage for what we're about to see in chapter 20. So turn there now and let's look at verse 1. Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. So David comes to Jonathan and says, hey, what gives? Your dad is trying to kill me. And Jonathan says, no way. If he were, I would know about it. And now the reason that Jonathan is so aghast at the news that his father is trying to kill David is because not that long ago, Saul actually swore to Jonathan that he wouldn't kill David. If you go back, well, you don't have to go back. This is from 1 Samuel 19, verse 6. It says that Saul hears the voice of his son, Jonathan, and Saul swears in 19, verse 6, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So you can see why when David says, hey, your dad is trying to kill me, what gives that Jonathan would react dubiously? He's not trying to kill you. He swore to me that he wouldn't. But David is insistent, and he tells Jonathan, go and see for yourself. You don't believe me? Go ask your dad. And so Jonathan and David in chapter 20 devise this little plan that will settle for good and all what Saul's intentions are for David. The next day is a feast day and David is invited to the king's feast, which would be awkward because the king has tried to kill David several times. So David isn't going to go. And when Saul asks where David is, Jonathan is going to tell his father that David went to his hometown of Bethlehem to offer the yearly sacrifice. And they come up with this plan that if Saul is pleased with that answer, then they will know that all is well between Saul and David. But if Saul is angered by that answer, then they will know that Saul seeks to do David harm. That's kind of the little sequence that David and Jonathan set up. And they also came up with a signal to let David know what the response was. Now, if you skip ahead to verse 19 of chapter 20, this is what Jonathan says to David. He says, On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain by the stone heap. Remember that stone heap. That's going to be important in a minute. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. 
But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. That's the signal that Jonathan and David come up with. And so David goes his way, and Jonathan goes to the feast. And little did either one of them know that the next couple of days would absolutely determine the course of the rest of their lives. And so two days pass. David goes to wait at that stone heap. Pretty soon he can hear Jonathan down at the other end of the field getting ready for some target practice with his bow. Thud. First arrow's in the ground. Thud. Another one. Thud. The third arrow goes into the ground. And then David hears Jonathan tell the boy that he brought with him to go and fetch the arrows. And this is the pivotal moment. Will Jonathan tell the boy that the arrows are in front of him or beyond him? And so the boy goes out into the field. I can just imagine David behind that rock, hearing the footsteps of the boy in the field. And then he hears Jonathan's voice from afar off. The arrows are beyond you. And David knows what has happened. He knows his fate. That arrow is hugely significant, certainly in the story as it plays out, but it also symbolizes, I think, the will and the wisdom of God for both David and for Jonathan, and also for us. Let me tell you what that arrow means for David. Again, imagine David sitting at that stone. The ESV translates it as a rock heap, but in Hebrew it is literally the stone of Edsel, which means stone of departure. How fitting that David waited to discover his fate at the stone of Edsel, the stone of departure. Either he would go back to serve again in Saul's kingdom to continue his friendship with Jonathan, or he would go into exile without a friend in the world, relying only upon the mercy of God. One of those two is to be God's path for David, the path that would eventually lead him to the throne. Now think about this. What do you think David would have preferred? Well, you know, if he's listening for the voice of Jonathan, hey, the the arrows are either before you or beyond you. What do you think David would have preferred to hear? I don't think there's any doubt which path David would rather take. Surely he would have rather chosen the path that led back to Jonathan back to his wife, Michael, whom he married in the last chapter, we saw that last week, back to the comfort of his own home, his noble position in Saul's kingdom and in the army, living in royalty. Surely David would have had the arrow land closer to Jonathan. Because if the arrow is beyond the boy, that means that he will have a life in exile as a fugitive, living out of the ruggedness of unknown mountains, Day after day, month after month, year after year. The decision, however, wasn't up to David. It also wasn't up to Jonathan. Jonathan didn't shoot that arrow. God shot that arrow. God has a plan and purpose for David, and it all comes down to that arrow. And so David simply hides at the stone of Etzel, the stone of departure, and waits for an arrow sent from heaven to hit exactly where God 
wants it to, an arrow that would tell him either to run away into the rugged wilderness or to go back to the palace of Saul. So get a picture of David in your mind, crouching behind the stone of Etzel, the stone of destiny, waiting, anticipating, his destiny hanging in the balance. balance. What are his feelings? What is the message to his heart? He knew that it meant God was sending him away. It wasn't left to chance. It was the will of God. In fact, this arrow was God's good plan for David, even if it didn't seem like it in the moment. Because again, before him lays the rugged mountains and the dark valleys with no promise of relief from the pressure. Behind him is the comfort of friendship and human love and home and restoration of honor. And with the thud of that arrow, he now had nothing but God, which is right where David needed to be. So what does that arrow mean for David? It means life as an outlaw. No home, no family to retreat to, hard days and nights, living outside in the wilderness, always on the run, always sleeping with one eye open, always being hunted as as prey and having to look over his shoulder. And so with that arrow, the challenge of that arrow for David is to trust. Trust that God knew what he was doing, that he had a plan for David, and that it was a good plan. But that arrow wasn't only significant for David. It changed Jonathan's destiny, too. You see that feast that Jonathan went to in order to kind of feel out his dad as how he felt about David? It didn't go very well, very well, either for David or for Jonathan. Jonathan went to that feast, and when Saul inquired as to why David's seat at the table was empty, Jonathan told him what he and David had agreed upon, that David was in Bethlehem offering the yearly sacrifice with his clan. And now look at verse 30 of chapter 20. It says, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, I do not know that you have, or do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Now, just try to imagine Jonathan as he knocks that arrow into his bow as he's out in the field. Now Jonathan knows without a doubt that his father is opposed by God. He knows beyond a doubt that God is going to give the kingdom to David, his father's enemy, which means that Jonathan will never be king. It means that Jonathan now lives as the son of the king, but that will come to an end. And more than any of that, it means that technically, on paper, Jonathan and David must be sworn enemies. This man that he has knit his soul together with, he is now must be sworn enemies of that same man. 
After all, what king allows his predecessor's children to remain alive? They would just threaten his throne, his hold on the throne. And this is not even to mention the horrible things that Jonathan's own father said and did to him at the feast. He said that Jonathan was the son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Now, on the face, that sounds like Saul is insulting Jonathan's mother. Why would he do that? Why would he insult Jonathan's mother, his own wife like that? Well, it wasn't an insult against Jonathan's mother, but against Jonathan himself. Because by saying that Jonathan was the son of a perverse and rebellious woman, Saul was saying that there was no way that he could be the son of Saul's wife. Saul would have surely never fathered such a treacherous son as Jonathan. Therefore, the implication of the insult is that Jonathan Jonathan must be an illegitimate child. He can't be my son. You must be the son of a perverse and rebellious woman. So you know what Saul is saying to his son, Jonathan? I have no son. You are not my son. So because of his standing up for David, Jonathan has essentially sacrificed his place in the royal family. And then to cap it all off, Saul even tries to kill Jonathan. It says that Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to strike him. Now that's a not-so-subtle hint about how Saul feels about Jonathan. So imagine how it must mess with your mind to know that God opposes your father's kingdom and that he is going to give it to your best friend. And how your part in that kingdom will come crashing down with your father. And now you're supposed to be a sworn enemy of your best friend. No more living the happy-go-lucky life of the prince of Israel. See, it was no small thing for Jonathan to pull that arrow out of his quiver and knock it into his bowstring. For Jonathan, that arrow meant uncertainty of the future. It meant a rift between him and his father, and perhaps the ending of his deepest relationship. And just like for David, the challenge of this arrow for Jonathan was to trust. To trust that God would help Jonathan navigate the tumultuous waters of his insane father. That God would somehow lead him to peace in the midst of all this strife that he now found himself in that God would show him the path to walk between his father and David. That's what the arrow means for Jonathan. What does the arrow mean for you? Well, just like David waited at that stone of Etzel, the stone of departure, I think each of us stand at that same stone. Except it's not a stone heap, it's not the stone of Etzel. The stone that those who are in Christ are standing at is a living stone. We read this verse earlier in the service from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus is a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Like David, we stand at a stone of destiny. But for those in Christ, it is a destiny that is fixed and unmovable by the power of God. Like David, we go through pressure and uncertainty and difficult circumstances. But whatever we face, we can bring it and leave it at that living stone, the stone of Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, we do what David did. We take our stand on that living stone and we wait and we trust. 
But you know what? It's actually a wonderful thing to be able to take your stand at the stone, the living stone of Christ, at the foot of the cross, the foot of that living stone, Jesus, and wait on his sovereign will for your life. Because there are many paths, and some are certainly more attractive than others. And we almost always would choose the easy path. We almost always would choose not to suffer, wouldn't you? Certainly, I think David would have. He would have chosen the easy way, the way that led home to safety, to his wife, to a position of honor in the king's court. But that easy way would not have led him to God's will for him, which was to be king over Israel. There was only one way that leads to the throne, and that is God's plan for David's life. It's also God's plan for your life and my life. There's only one way that leads to the throne of grace, and that is through Jesus Christ. Think about this. Think about some of the hard things that God has called you to. Certainly there are some in your own, or in your own life that are particular to you, but there are some that all of us in Christ, some arrows that God shoots over our head that call us to a destiny of being a follower of Jesus. Listen to these arrows that God shoots over your head. From Luke 9, verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's a hard destiny that God has called each one of us to. Matthew 10, verse 37, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is the arrow that God shoots beyond you and calls you to that destiny. It won't be easy. It will be fraught with difficulty and uncertainty, but it is what God has called you to as a follower of Christ. Luke 14, Jesus says, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's a hard destiny that the Father has called all those who are in Christ to follow. That's God's plan for you. It might be difficult, but it is a good plan, and it will lead you to life and ultimate satisfaction. It will lead you to the throne, just like that arrow led David to the throne. And that was a hard plan, but it was a good plan. So maybe you're standing at your own personal stone of Etzel this morning, the stone of departure. I think of some of you and the discussions I've had with you, and some of you are at that stone, and you're wondering, Lord, what are you doing? What's next? Where am I supposed to go? Lord, what am I supposed to do? I think of those people that we'll be ministering to through Project Home, who suddenly, as Susan said, in the coldest month of the year, find themselves without a home, a permanent residence, and they think, Lord, what are you doing? Where am I going to go from here? Maybe you're at that place, especially as this is a new year. And there are numerous plates you're spinning all at the same time. And there's this and that and any number of things that aren't resolved, that need attention, that might turn out badly. Do what David did. Stand at the stone and wait. And as the arrows come to show you God's will and his plan for all the different circumstances of your life, trust Trust that God knows what he is doing. Trust that God has your good in his heart. Trust that even the, the time in the wilderness will not last forever. 
Trust that he is wise and kind and knows what you need even before you ask him. Trust that he will provide for you in every way that you need. Again, I think of the story of David, and we'll get into this more next week. You know what this arrow also meant for David? Ten years in that wilderness. About ten years David spent on the run from Saul. Ten years, so that arrow shoots over his head, and he hears Jonathan, the arrow is beyond you, and he knows God is sending him away. He doesn't know for how long. Ten years. Ten years of looking over his shoulder, running away from Saul. Some of you may have been, maybe have been in the wilderness for a long time, maybe years, maybe decades. That doesn't change God's good plan for you. And the call upon you is to trust him. So I can say with certainty to every one of us in this room, the arrow is beyond you. I don't know where God is directing you, but I know that he is already there. And that whatever it is, it is part of his good plan for you. Jonathan and David both learned this, and might I be so bold to say it's a lesson that we can learn too. And let me just show, show you one more thing from this text. It's the way that Jonathan and David reconnect after all this business with the arrows. Both of them know that God has determined their fates, and both of them know that the fates given to them will not be easy. So the question is, how can we help people who are sitting at the stone of Etzel who have just seen that arrow that is beyond them? Look at verse 41 of chapter 20. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between ye, me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Jonathan and David, after the, the arrows, comfort and encourage one another in what God has planned for them. I think both of them knew that life from here on out isn't going to be easy. And actually, the friendship between Jonathan and David would essentially come to an end right here in chapter 20 because God's will was leading them in different directions. In fact, David and Jonathan would only see each other one more time in their lives shortly before Jonathan dies. So what, what did they do in recognition of this fact? that they would have to part ways, they renew their unity in God. You see, Jonathan had submitted himself to the will of God and to the eventual rule of David over Israel. And in this, they parted company knowing that God was sovereign, that he knew the future, even if they didn't. All they could do is be faithful to God and to each other. And this bond between them, this covenant of unity in their common faith in God's will for them, overrode anything that might draw them apart. Each of them needed a friend who would be there even in the worst of times, and each of them were in the worst of times at this moment. So maybe think about this. Is there someone in your life who is sitting at the stone of Etzel that you could encourage the way Jonathan and David encouraged one another? 
What could you say to somebody who is trying to see that arrow? Where did that arrow land? And they're in the midst of strife and confusion. And Lord, what are you going to do next? How could you encourage that person in your life? How could you help them? Jonathan and David just spent some time crying with one another. Maybe that's something you could do. They also committed to be faithful to one another in friendship, no matter how far apart God's will for them led them. Maybe that's something you could do. Renew your bonds of fellowship and unity with those who are looking for God's will. This is a moving passage of Scripture because in it we see our frailty. We see the uncertainty of the future and how we don't know the future. We don't know what's coming next. We see the very real threats that sometimes life can bring that we largely have no control over. But hopefully, even more than any of that, we see that the sovereign hand of God is directing our lives, just as he did David and Jonathan. He is directing our fates and our destinies, directing us according to his sovereign will, directing us according to his good and gracious plan for us. And the lesson of the arrow for us is to trust, to trust in him that he knows what is best and he is doing what is best for us. Let's pray. Our Father God, Lord, I thank you for your wisdom and your will. Lord, even if there are times when I don't understand and I can't see the direction that you are leading, Lord, I know you will lead and all your ways are good for me. Lord, I pray specifically this morning for those who might be pondering and considering where you are leading, what you might have them do. Maybe they're in some very difficult situation or circumstance and they don't know what next step to take. God, provide the answer. Provide the direction that they need to glorify you, to honor you in their lives, and so that they might walk your way for them. Lord, help each of us as we seek to navigate life's twists and turns and to answer the questions that come up, to have the right words to say to people who are in need. Lord, help us. Open up your word to us so that we might have your wisdom and your will as we live our lives, so that we might be an offering to you that brings you glory. God, help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.